everyone. Welcome back to the big show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, episode 63. And again this week, we are in Martin Luther's Penitential Psalms, Psalm 102. The psalmist writes, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to thee. Do not hide thy face from me. In the day of my distress, incline thy ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Dr. Luther writes, The prayer is his desire for grace. The cry is his story of misery. This now follows. Do not be angry with me as I have deserved. To turn away the face is a sign of wrath, while to turn the face toward one is a sign of grace. And then he continues commenting on verse 2, the second part. In the day of my distress, incline thy ear to me. Dr. Luther comments, hear me at the time I am distressed and I am suffering. To, de- to incline the ear is nothing else than to heed the cry of a troubled heart. Yet this same inclining also means that though he cannot call or desire strongly enough to reach up to the ears of God, he prays that God may turn downward toward him to hear him. And thus, not only when I am pursued and suffer from the others, as the foregoing verse indicates, answer me speedily in the day when I call, but in every time of need. For this psalm, like the others, first describes the inner suffering which the saints bear because of their sins in a penitent heart, then also the persecution by others on account of this same crucified life. And again, that is Dr. Martin Luther's comments on Psalm 102, verses 1 and 2 from Luther's Works, Volume 14. And this is... Well, is this the sixth of the penitential psalms that we've done? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So we're six of the seven. I'm Gillespie, by the way. (laughs) As always, we are your host, Pastor Christopher Gillespie, as he noted, and I am often Pastor Donovan Riley. Play one on TV anyway. I play one. I I stayed at Holiday Inn Express last (laughs) week. Yeah, we've been sitting in the penitential psalms because it's been uh, Lent and we're recording right now on Holy Week. Hopefully we can get this out yet during Holy Week, although there's a fairly few things to do this week for me, but uh, you know. A few. Same thing every year. I don't, not worth complaining about, really. It's like, you knew this was coming. (laughs) Right. No, we have a cushion. No surprises. Let's, Let's be honest. Yeah. So the prayer is the psalmist's desire for grace. The cry is his story of misery. Thus, hear my prayer, let my cry come to thee. Misery, miserable, misericordia, mm-hmm. miser, right? Yeah. All derivative of, I need mercy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think, I was thinking about the the collect for yesterday, which is, we were a little bit hung up on old Roman collect, and... Uh, you know, because it, it, it really strongly suggests some kind of uh, human agency, like we can, uh, you know, right. we can cooperate or collaborate or follow after right. an example. And if you read it carefully, it says, you know, by your grace or by, or sometimes by your mercy. So then mm. the, the, the challenge being is like, you know, is mercy this substance of God that, that we can uh, utilize in order to accomplish all sorts of things? Right. Go juice. Well, in the medieval collects, Yes, of course it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And as a consequence, you get those butts halfway through the collect. That is, in that late medieval system, God is the prime mover. He's the first cause. Mm. He's the one who gets everything. He gets the ball rolling. And then we are the accident. What we do is the accident, as it's called. That is, God gets the ball rolling, Mm -hmm. and then we come alongside that, and we keep it moving. Mm. Mm. Right, that's essentially what it is. Yeah, but in a in a in to push the analogy, then in a Lutheran direction, we recognize that's the myth of Sisyphus. Uh-huh. Yeah, pushing pushing that rock uphill only to have it go back down to the bottom when we reach the peak. Right, and so what's the myth? We might call it, um, or you know, in a technical way, we'd call it human agency, right, or moral agency yeah. that you have not only the ability but also the responsibility um, to be, well, responsible for yourself, not just before right. one another but also before God. Right. Mm. 
Which, as you noted, we were talking about Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's mm-hmm. heart. Right. And Erasmus, for example, in his famous debate with Luther, one of the examples he uses to prove that we have at least some free will in relation to our salvation is Pharaoh. Because as Erasmus will argue, to sum up his argument, God would be cruel and unjust if we did not have a choice first whether or not we are going to reject him. And thus, for God to say, well, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart because I just don't like him that much, or because it suits my purposes to to Erasmus, is actually for God to be unjust and unlawful, ultimately. Mm. That's really what we're talking about in Erasmus's case. Mm is that God is is unlawful because he doesn't give he doesn't give Pharaoh a choice. Right. And I think I, I think the debate about it gets all hung up on the idea that somehow, you know, Pharaoh's just not that bad. Right? I mean he mm-hmm. he he could, you know, if he just kind of got things straightened out, he he you know, he could come around. <laughs> You're like, do you realize right. that from the from a very young age he was taught that he is Horus incarnate, that he is God. Yes. He's a god. Yeah. 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 And uh <laughs> and commits genocide. And, and yeah, right. We, we have plenty of backstory <laughs> to indicate that Pharaoh is not the guy. It really, is not going to matter all that much what God does. Uh, he's right. just not going to go with it, right? Well, and I was taught by um, an Old Testament scholar that Exodus isn't the the primary thesis of Exodus is not God freeing His people from slavery mm. in Egypt. That's not actually the thesis of the text. The thesis, the primary thesis, is who's true God. Yeah. That's all the first half, at least. The first half of Exodus is a showdown between Horus, as you noted, and Yahweh. Right. Right. And the proof that Pharaoh isn't Horus is he doesn't rise from the dead after he's drowned. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is that Pharaoh Pharaoh can essentially, through his magi, magi, he can essentially do what any god does. He does, yeah. The frogs, the gnats, the whole the blood, right. water to blood, the whole deal. But the ultimate test, biblically speaking, for whether you are a true God or not is well, if I kill you, can you rise from the dead? Mm. Which again points us to Jesus. Pharaoh ain't Jesus. Right. And it's true. I mean, he, God uses Pharaoh as hmm, as a negative example. We'll put it that way. Right. Uh, right. But, but I mean, as impressive as it is, I mean, Pharaoh was well known as, you know, to be not only, um, you know, impressive leader, but also, you know, to have all this, this, this power, right? Um, right. Uh, through the magic arts, I guess we call it sorcery or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, by overcoming him in such a dramatic way, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Hebrews are feared by every nation. Right. I mean, news travels. Right. And they, yeah. they, don't, they can't go anywhere without somebody being like, uh, are you coming in peace or are you going to actually you know, do the same thing to us? Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. And then you have Gog and Magog. That didn't go well. <laughs> It just reinforced. And actually, if you want to see how this works, it may seem strange, but go watch the movie Stargate. Oh. Because in Stargate, they do worship him yeah. as a god. Yeah. And that's his hubris, the undoing of the uh, the alien in the in the story is he actually starts to believe his own press. <laughs> that he's worshipped as a god and he essentially is a god as he says. And that hubris is what allows him to be defeated in the end by the heroes. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to kind of like uh, go along with your own myth just for the sake of uh, expediency, right? Right. <laughs> right. But it's, in a, yeah, to, to actually fall for it and to come to believe yeah. it. But that that was my yeah. point. I mean, Pharaoh was taught this from, from basically from infancy, that that's who he was. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so. And why wouldn't he believe that? He had absolute and total power, as you mm-hmm. said. Right, right, right. And so I guess my question or my point was with agency – um, you know, God's mercy is not some kind of like thing that you go out and grasp, you know, that or that right. you call upon like as a talisman or as a formula or something right. like that. Uh, it is his character. It is who he is. Well, I was going to say too, right. I just, it was one of my favorite movies growing up. It was one of those, one of those movies that if I took a nap, I could stay up and watch it because it was always on the late night movie, <laughs> but it was called The Man Who Would Be King with Michael Caine and Sean Connery oh, okay. about these two soldiers of fortune. And they basically go in search of this tribe, kind of like the lost city of Montezuma kind of thing, mm-hmm, right? The right. lost gold. Right. And when they when they arrive there because of these people have never seen Europeans before and they dress different and they have weaponry, they're worshipped as gods. Hmm. And it's a fascinating study then in the first commandment for this reason, because at a certain point in the movie, 
something happens where it turns out that the people discover they're not gods. Oops. And then the fallout from that. It's a fantastic old movie called The Man Who Would Be King. Wow. And of course, it's Sean Connery and Michael Caine, so how can you go wrong? <laughs> yeah. But it is, it's, this is the problem with hubris. You know, this is the problem with original sin. Well, and isn't the highest form of hubris is to think that somehow um, you can bend God's ear, right? Yes, uh, or, right. I mean, here, like in the day of, of my distress, incline that ear to me. It, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not uh, manipulating God or something like that. It's, it's actually just uh, asking him to be what he already said he's going to do right you're holding yeah you're you're calling a thing what it is you're as luther says you're praying for grace that's the desire here Mm -hmm. but you're also crying out because of your misery because you're miserable right so you're yeah you're you're not manipulating god saying hey if you hadn't noticed i'm suffering a lot for you Mm. therefore quid pro quo where's your grace versus this is just the situation Mm. this is just the way it is and we could all also then say this is the distinction between the hidden and the revealed God. Yeah. Well, and I, yeah, that's a good point because you think about it, you know, the, how many prayers do you need? Right. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, there's prayer chains and you got to get it in as, have as many churches and many Christians praying for you as, as if somehow, you know, that's going to, that God doesn't quantity. Well, and that he doesn't quantity already, is its own quality to quote Napoleon. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you have to be impressed. Your prayers need to be impressive or impress him uh, in order to get what you want. Rather, right. He already knows what you need and provides for it before you ask, before you it. even ask. And, and the prayer of even a single righteous man avails much. Right. As it's right. So, so what's the, <laughs> what are we doing here? basically mm-hmm. we're laying ourselves open to god right uh, rather right. than claiming any kind of um ability or strength of our own claiming i've got nothing right. here right well and to dig down even deeper and this is perhaps troubling to us <laughs> is that in the psalms we don't actually pray correctly unless god pushes down on us uh, yeah there is this imagery of the grapes being pressed and the juice being extruded from the pressure of the press against the grapes. You see this in this, the penitential Psalms. Your hand was heavy upon me when I did not confess my sin so that my bones melted within me and my tears soaked my bed. Is yeah. that even our confession is actually forced out of us by God. Which, as we've talked about on the other episodes, this is both good and bad. <laughs> yeah, so our uh, this myth of agency that we can somehow collaborate, cooperate, or manipulate god um right uh, we are creatures he is the creator (laughs) so the point being then that we discussed this in adult bible study yesterday in regards to um forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us studying again the large catechism it's easy to focus on the god doesn't answer my prayers side of things or well what happens if i don't feel like praying for forgiveness and i don't feel like forgiving my neighbor what then Mm -hmm. and i noted Whenever we discuss prayer, we always leave out the work of the Holy Spirit, which Paul in Romans 8 very specifically and precisely explains the Holy Spirit prays for us because we don't know how to. So the very fact that you pray is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Because atheists Absolutely. don't pray. No. And what, well, who would they pray to? <laughs> right. They babble to some God, some unknown God, we would call that the hidden God, God who does not want to be known by us as gracious and kind and faithful. And it's as disturbing as it is to our piety. We don't pray because we want to. We don't pray because we should. Sometimes we pray because we're commanded to pray and we're afraid of the consequences Mm -hmm. if we don't. But even that's the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. So whether we come at prayer from the perspective of misery or we come at prayer from the perspective of Mm -hmm. desiring Mm -hmm. grace, which according to Luther go hand in hand, it's still all the work of God. Right. So whether one prays or whether a thousand pray, whether you pray the Lord's prayer, whether you pray simply, Lord, give me strength, or whether you pray Psalm 119 beginning to end, it doesn't matter. It's all the work of the spirit. So, I mean, we're, we're praying dependent upon what, who God is and what he's already promised to us. Right. So back to the book, verse 5, Psalm 102, verse 5, because of my loud groaning, my bones cleave to my flesh. 
Dr. Luther writes, In my life of groaning, I labor and fight against my evil nature, so much that I am nothing but skin and bones, as Job says. Quote, my bones cleave to my skin. Chapter 19, verse 20. By this groaning, therefore, not only the bodily and momentary sobbing is to be understood, but the whole repentant life and the laborious desire for grace and comfort. Such people experience how profoundly original sin has corrupted us. However, the bones of those who do not blame themselves and do not know what is wrong with themselves do not cleave to their flesh. Such people are full of fresh blood and energy and of a well-fed body. Thus we read in the first of these Psalms, chapter or Psalm 6, verse 7, quote, I am weary with my moaning, end quote. So this is a wonderful picture language, isn't it, of just the mm. nature of, uh, of our condition. I mean, what it feels like, if you like, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, and quoting Job uh, as really the psalmist is, was reflecting upon Job. Job written before the psalms, right? Well, apparently. Uh, so so we uh, come to believe. <laughs> as far as Dr. Luther dates it, yes. Yeah, yeah. So this uh, the Job, I mean, really is, maybe, maybe that's a good point. He really sets the tone as far as the penitential psalms go. How to lament, Yeah. right? Right. Yeah. I labor and fight against my evil nature so much that I am nothing but skin and bones. And again, here, Luther draws out the symbol. Oh, yeah. That the new man in Christ fights against the old Adam, mm-hmm. that the spirit fights against the flesh. This is Romans 7 imagery again. Right. But also, as you pointed out, as Luther points out, this is Job in imagery. Job sets the table for this psalm. Yeah. As far as Luther's concerned. Yeah. And thus, it is going back to verse one, it is not, it's the dichotomy between misery and grace that they actually go hand in hand. Mm, mm. Even though we may tend to see them as as opposites. Well, if I receive grace, why would I be miserable? But if I'm miserable, obviously it's because I don't have grace. Versus, well, no, because you are fully sinful in your flesh and fully righteous in Christ. And so in your flesh, there's nothing but misery, laboring and fighting against your own evil nature. But then in Christ, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you, the prayer itself, which is a work of the spirit, as we just said, mm-hmm. will cause you misery in your flesh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, think about a, a funeral. I mean, that's a great context where you have right. have that dichotomy going on at the same time where right. uh, we do grieve and we mourn. And it's, it's I would say, spiritual abuse to say to someone, don't cry, don't worry about it, it's going to be okay. Right. right? You right. say, no, um, yes, I mean, look, this person is dead, right? And we should grieve. Um, that not only for right. them but also for us, right? That, that that's mm-hmm. our that's our future. And yes, we we don't grieve as those without any hope. <laughs> right. So at, right. So at the same time, we proclaim this body um, is dead and yet we'll live. Right. Right. I think I explained this. I think I did a video devotion last week, but I explained uh, back when I was in Guatemala, the one of the Roman Catholic priests, Padre Juan. We never said goodbye to anybody. He just said, see you at lunch. Oh, yeah. And I've told the story before where it took me like halfway down the mountain before I realized what he was talking about because <laughs> I was still young and even dumber than I am now. <laughs> and so now I say the same thing, that the pain is the pain of separation, mm-hmm. but it's also the pain of having to wait till lunch to see your your mom or your dad or your grandma or your son or your daughter. Yeah, and yeah. So- it's that time in between. It's like on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I see my kids when they wake up. And then I take two to middle school, high school, and my wife takes the other two to the elementary school. And from 6.45, 7 a.m. in the morning on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I don't see my kids often until the next day mm. because work, and then I go straight from work to train, and then I teach, and I get home around 8, 8.30, 9 o'clock after they're already going to bed. Right. So they don't see me that whole day. And when we wake up on Wednesday morning or Friday morning, then there is actually this sense of rejoicing and celebration yeah. because we genuinely, we missed each other all day long. Yeah, yeah. And I tell people that that is what it means to be a Christian when it comes to funerals, mm. just exaggerated to the 10th power. Yeah. Is we believe we're going to see the, each other again, but that day is really long. Yeah. Yeah. That grieving and that sorrow is for today um, and right. tomorrow. Uh, until the day of resurrection. Right. I mean, that's right. Right. Yeah. And so we can pray then, you know, how long, O oh Lord? You know, right. Are you going to forget me? 
Well, no, he's not going to forget mm-hmm. you. But that that's certainly right. what your flesh is telling you, right? Right. Even Peter addresses this in his letter. Mm-hmm. Because what is the challenge? Well, even in Peter's time, people are saying, oh, I thought you said that Jesus was coming back. <laughs> yeah, true. And And so Peter has to answer those accusations because he's writing, what, 15, 20 years after the resurrection. Yeah. And, the, and people are saying, we're dying. Where, where's Jesus? It's kind of like uh, Eve with the promise, you know, of the offspring to crush the serpent's head. And then it's right. like, well, here's Cain. Okay. All right. I've right. got him. Yep. Here he is. The Lord gave me a Lord. Here he yeah, is, my Savior. Yeah. And then uh, what, however many thousand years later, uh, right. yeah, the virgin conceives finally. Right. <laughs> Well, I've, I think I've talked about that before too. I point out to people that the time from Abraham to Jesus is almost the same amount of time as it is from Jesus to now. Mm, yeah. It's about 2,000 years, a little older. Yeah. Or to think of it in different terms, the the close of the Old Testament, the close of scripture is about 500 years mm. until we get the gospel of Matthew. Yeah. So for over 500 years, you have the wars, of the, you have the Maccabean Wars, the Maccabean Revolts, and all that goes on with that. And go back and read the Apocrypha, read the Maccabean histories. Mm. And yeah, they're fully convinced that if they don't militate, if they're not militant towards the Greeks, for example, that how can the Messiah come back? Mm. And this is what ends up happening then is that we get impatient. Right. And then we take, as you pointed out with Pharaoh, we try and and take agency. Yeah. We try and assign agency. Yeah. So in one sense, um, you're remembering the promise, but in another sense, you've, you've, actually forgotten it because you've distorted it into something right so far from what was actually promised right. i mean, think about the messianic yeah. hope uh, that we see right. like you know are you elijah or maybe enoch um <laughs> you know wh- right. maybe moses i mean one of these guys is going to show up that's what john the baptist right you know exactly like, yeah you've got to be one of them right right and you're like where is this written you know well okay yeah. elijah yes there there is some prophecy there but moses what what mm-hmm. uh Enoch, yeah, I know he's taken up into heaven. He's part of this heavenly council or something, but what are you talking about? And it's just, right. you just start adding and um, subtracting and adding to the promise right. um, and, and end up creating some new thing that's not actually at all what God had promised. Yeah. Right. And so I think that we're, we're, we've gotten away from actually our faith and hope being in Christ alone, right? Over time. Right. And in the same way that with Moses and Pharaoh, mm. And the recognition that what is it that in the, at the end of the day, what distinguishes a real God from a false God? And it is the ability to rise from the dead. So you'll notice then there are lots of saviors <laughs> popping up in Israel when Jesus is running around mm-hmm. before and after. We know this because of Barabbas. But even extra, test, extra testamental histories record this. And to this day then, I was watching two weeks ago, I think I was watching an interview with Ben Shapiro, who's an Orthodox Jew, an observant Jew. And he was asked a question about Christianity and Jesus. And that's his reasoning. I don't accept Christianity because, well, Jesus isn't what they think he is because one, he breaks all the laws by claiming to be God, be equal to God. And two, there were lots of messiahs popping up at this time and even before that. Yeah, good point. And therefore he, and so- all and guess what? All of these other messiahs, they also claimed to do miracles. They also could teach wisdom. They also had followers. Therefore, I think because of the effects of Christendom, for example, we forget in the present tense the only thing that distinguishes Jesus from other saviors is his resurrection from the dead. Yeah, because he doesn't have clubs and sword. He doesn't actually win the kind of victory they're right. looking for. Right. And uh, right. He's not a Barabbas. He's not a revolutionary. And yet Ben Shapiro in his this interview that he did, that's exactly where he goes is, well, he's just another revolutionary. Yeah. He was just another Messiah claiming, you know, shooting for the throne, so to speak. Yeah, he doesn't restore the Davidic uh, kingship. As, and right. that's the promise, right? Of course. Right, we, that's the whole failure of understanding and appreciating Palm Sunday when we celebrate it. Sure. We dress it up with the kids and the palm branches and we talk about the triumphal entry. It's not, and it is, it's the dichotomy again. I mean, he does come in like is, Solomon. That, right. That be, it's a striking resemblance. You know, he is David's son. <laughs> yeah, he is. And the crowds go first, then the disciples, mm-hmm. so that in the end he's alone. There's nobody with him. And therefore, everyone has forsaken him. Everyone has betrayed him. And we get it wrong constantly because we fall back on that glory theology, mm-hmm. 
which is, well, look at Jesus's triumphal entry and the sweet Hosanna's ring in the hymn and the kids come into church and they sing and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And it's a precursor to all the pastels and the alleluias of Easter morning versus this king comes without hostility. He comes without weapons and armor. He comes without a war horse. He comes without war cries. Instead, he comes humble and ordinary, as the prophet says, right. as Zechariah right. says. Right. He's humble, he's ordinary, and humble means no different than anybody else. Mm -mm. You don't consider yourself to be more or less important than anybody else. So he doesn't fit the bill. And yet you and I would argue against a, an observant Jew, but what about Zechariah? What about Isaiah? What about Elijah? Mm -hmm. What about all these Did things? he fulfill and, those promises? Right. Yeah, that promise. Whereas they, they argue, well, those were put into his mouth after the fact. Okay, fair enough. But then we- Right, I mean, that's the argument. The, the argument that I had as an atheist even was, well, these were in decades after he was raised from, claimed, they claimed that he was raised from the dead. Or they told They're, the story in such a way that he obviously uh, fit the bill, you know, but, but right. they conformed his life yeah, to the prophecy, right? Yeah. 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 I think it was Josh McDowell wrote a little book called More Than a Carpenter back in the mm -hmm. 70s. Yeah. Kind of like an apologetics for Jesus. Uh, actually, I still like that book. It's a great book. Um, certainly helpful for this, this point. But back to the book, because of my loud groaning, my bones, my bones cleave to my flesh that this isn't an argument. There's no debate here. Mm -mm. We don't do apologetics in in the context of prayer and crying out, uh, like I said, it's just calling a thing what it is. This is the theology. Of the, uh, this is a theologian of the cross being made. Also, why then I don't say theology of the cross and I catch myself hmm. because a theology is something that's codified. Yeah, it's a system. It becomes a yeah. It's a system. A theologian of the cross is made, as Dr. Luther says, by suffering mm -hmm. and by being crucified. Well, like we were t like we were talking about with Pharaoh. I mean, that's the challenge is that we. Really, what happens when people get arguing about that, or th or the theodicy question? You know, uh, does God is God the author of evil, or or does right. God author or harden Pharaoh's heart? Is that what we're doing? Is actually approaching the text with our own kind of presuppositions, our own systematic like approach. Well, and the prejudice of yeah, I want choice. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which that presumption then affects our reading in such a way. I mean, can you ever approach right. the text neutrally? I don't know. I mean, here. Well, apparently not. <laughs> if we, if you hold the tension, right? If we hold the tension of the symbol, you are always approaching God's words with hostility, right? So here, I mean, to to confess that you're 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 groaning and your bones are uh, cleaved to your flesh. Um, I like how Luther goes with it, and again, I think he's approaching it from that presumption of the that we're both sinners and saints at the same time, right? Which, right, which is right. his. I mean, that's where we got it from him. Well, from Paul, right, and then from right. Him. Uh, yeah. And so. To say that my flesh is, uh, you know, groaning, or bones are groaning, mm -hmm. I'm groaning because of the uh, my flesh and bones, is to say, redeem me, forgive me, right. comfort me, you know? So Pull me out of the pit. Yeah, so so it has its, as negative as it sounds, it's uh, also confessing that God is the source of, of relief, of comfort, of hope, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and that's, we... <laughs> You could even call it self-righteous hostility mm. because when we go into the Bible, we go into it believing we're righteous, that we're good, we're Christian. And then, as you said, we don't take, we don't contend against our own presuppositions, our own prejudices, mm. the old Adam's prejudices, mm. which is the only reason I'm reading this book is to find my my story uh, in this book. Yeah. And so how, what is this, how does this apply to me? Well, it's actually about Jesus. Great, but how is it about me? Well, and really, the study of Scripture, I think in general, and, and certainly the preaching of it, and, and you know, being attentive to God's Word, it is violent. It, 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 right, right. It, well, if it's done faithfully, I would say, um, it, it doesn't leave you right. comfortable. <laughs> mm -hmm. It may comfort you, um, but only after exposing your weakness, your, your shame, your right. guilt, um, your flaw. Uh, original sin, we might even say. Well, and we've talked about that on past podcasts, is that if every page of Scripture preaches Christ, yes, but the backspin of that is every page of Scripture preaches you're a sinner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Who needs a Christ? Right. So yeah, there's violence from both directions. That's the force of exegesis. Yeah. But to come back to, to what we were talking about, Dr. Ken Corby famously said, we when we go to the Lord's Supper, we're practicing going to our death, because when we go to our death, we go to the Lord's Supper. 
And that's the violence there too, Yeah, is that you're, you're dragging the old Adam to his death by going to the Lord's table. And I often feel, I mean, I, I've had folks that, that um, will not commune uh, for one reason or another. And, and sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, it's out of desire to maybe, um, you know, confess and repent to someone they've heard of harmed, right? With their words or deeds. Right. Sometimes yeah. though, it's because they're, um, they're just not quite believing, Right. Regards to the sacrament, hundred yeah, percent. And part of me wants to say, "What's wrong with you?" Uh, right. Why? Well, what's wrong with them is that just like me, they have flesh that denies right, hundred percent reality of the sacrament. But the other part of me is like, I kind of want to just drag them up to the altar, mm-hmm. you know, and let commune them and let God figure it out. Right. <laughs> right. Well, what I ask is, do you believe Jesus died for sinners? Yes. Are you a sinner? Well, of course I am, Pastor. Then you need to get up there now. But I'm, because, but Pastor, I'm hung up on this whole body and blood thing. How's that under bread and wine? Great. Like, yeah, me too. Good. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's why I stick to the words. <laughs> right. It is what it is. Jesus Instead says of just so. Just making it up as I go. Um, and that, yeah, should that be enough? Yeah. Um, right. Is it enough? Mm, not for our flesh. We want more. We want right. reason. Well, you know, rationality. That you and I have talked about this. For me, is I didn't really come to truly appreciate this until I was a pastor and had to answer this question in confirmation in Sunday school. All right, yeah. That word mysterion, that this is a mystery, and the East retained it and the West dropped it, <laughs> is that recognizing and emphasizing and doubling and tripling down pastorally on the mystery of the sacrament. That is, we will not know the, the, the reveal until the last day. Right. And then it won't matter. But until the last day, this is a mystery. How is it possible that the God who created 140 billion galaxies and wove you together, specifically you, in your mother's womb, he decided you needed to exist. Oh, he even numbered the hairs on your head, by the way. And numbered the hairs on your head, baptized you against your will, because he loves you so much, loves you so unconditionally that he's also open to you hating and reviling him for this and says, go ahead, hate me. I can take it. Then brings you to the table and says, I'm going to do this for you. It's for you. And I did it for you without asking. And you say, well, I just can't believe it. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. That's why it's a mystery. Right. right. And if you lose that tension, if you lose that symbol, that is that your flesh will always reject the truth of the sacrament. And yet, because you are a new man in Christ through the work of the spirit, you will always hunger and thirst for the sacrament, whether you're even aware of it or not. Right. And that tension is why you make these confessions the way you do. Mm. But if it's a mystery, then you're not on the hook for having to understand it like it's a math problem or something. Like it's Euclidean geometry. Maybe the Western concept of a mystery, even the genre of a mystery, is something that you're supposed to figure out. Whereas, Right, 100%. So that's part of the problem, even with using that word or sacrament um, in either case, is that, right. yeah, do you have to figure it out? Is it something that's not true and then we have to get to the bottom of it to find out what's actually true no right actually it's true we can't comprehend it right it will right. be revealed to us as as to how it's true or something like that yeah or right. even then maybe it won't even matter <laughs> it's only a mystery because right because we'll be with the this is why when people say well the thief on the cross didn't you know he wasn't baptized because he was hung less than five feet away from the sacrament yeah yeah. He doesn't need baptism. He's got Jesus. Well, and we see this uh, again with the, like, say, the book of Acts and the way that people apply that as saying, well, if you're not speaking in tongues or if right. you're not handling snakes or something, um, then you don't really have the spirit. And you're like, okay, maybe I can't do those things, but this, has the spirit promised that to everyone? Is it, right. Or has rather he promised, believe and be baptized, you'll be saved, right? Um, right. You know, come to me. And he does right. that through the word. Those are the, what do you want to say, the natural, the normal means of the spirit. Mm -hmm. Does he work supernaturally, make donkeys talk and stuff? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Do any of those things persist in Paul's letters or Peter's letters or John's letters? No. No. What persists? Baptism and the gospel preaching. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. That's what persists. You don't see Peter and Paul doubling down on snake handling or walking (laughs) through fire or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And Peter and Paul, Peter in particular, he doesn't bring up the things that he does that are recorded in the book of Acts. Oh, like raising the like dead? The healing. Yeah. Like the, yeah. He doesn't bring that up. He brings up baptism. Over and he over. He brings up Paul, right? I don't understand what the hell Paul's talking about most of the time. But hey, he preaches Jesus and people seem to come to faith in Jesus. So, you know, yeah, good point. Just, I got him. 
yeah, you know, <laughs> here goes his way, I go my way. But no, it's it's constantly going back to the Holy Spirit, God's word, and baptism mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we can say, well, what's prescriptive? Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the gospel preaching. What's not? What's descriptive? Healing, speaking in tongues, handling snakes, even even raising the dead. Yeah. I'm I'm just saying, if I raise the dead, you would never hear the end of it. <laughs> well, think about the uh, you know we're in Holy Week. Think about the record the records of um, of Christ's death. You know, only Matthew mm-hmm. records the death the dead coming out of their graves after his resurrection. Right. Only Matthew does. And doesn't even bother to explain it with a footnote. Right. Or tell us who these guys are. You know, yeah. or anything like that. The dead got up and went home. Yeah. Just by the way. And it's it's just yeah. not that important to the story, but it's the thing right. that people latch onto and saying, "Oh, right. well, did they die again?" And uh, I was like, oh, "Good night." Yeah, yeah. They, yes, they did. But it's a picture that he, he, yes, Jesus has power over sin and death. He did truly rise from the dead. Right. It's another verifiable right, right. kind of proof. And those yeah. those I those who rose from the dead, they bore witness. That's what they did. Mm-hmm. They testified. Jesus ro- rose me from the dead. Okay. Yeah. And he's risen. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. That's enough. Um, and it's but again, it's only it's unique in Matthew, and it's just not the main thing. Right. We're always looking right. looking for the resurrection of the dead. That means when he comes to judge the living and the dead on the last day. Well, and right, Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, hmm. and there was that dispute about the resurrection of the dead amongst the religious, especially leaders. in his gospel. Yeah, right, hundred yeah. percent. So back to the book, verse eight. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Doctor Luther writes, those who are opposed to God's word and this life and are pleased with their own life, judge and condemn me without ceasing. They cast aside and despise my word and work. So obviously a Holy Week text. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> the psalmist continues, those who deride me use my name for a curse. Dr. Luther writes, these are the same enemies who praise me in mockery and derision. For such praise is worse than twofold mockery. That is, they make of me an example an oath, a curse, and wish, as the saying goes, quote, may God do to you as he did to this one and that one, end quote. Yeah. Oof. Right. And this, this is a hard thing to hear, um, but this is the Christian life. And it's, it, right. it's also the institutional life of the church, is that we're mocked right. and we're derided, and people say, look at them, you know, they're idiots. Right. Uh, what are they wasting their time, effort, money on? You know, right. why even bother? Just stay home. And as we've been talking about, it's one thing when an individual is at in conflict with God, when the old Adam is in conflict with God. Mm-hmm. But when you get a whole bunch of old Adams together <laughs> and you build up an institution around them, it becomes monstrous and satanic very quickly because the old Adam's interested in one thing, self-preservation. Mm-hmm. He'll cut the gospel off at the knees if he needs to, if he, to save himself. Like Pharaoh. Likewise, then an institution, because it has so much more power, so much more control and influence over a larger group of people, right. will do the same thing. I mean, that's the, the fundamental purpose of any institution, whether it's church or otherwise, is self-preservation. Sure. So that could be used you know, by God for, for good use, right? Think about right. family as one of those examples, an institution from God. Absolutely, right. right? Where he, right. he joins together um, and, right. and he gathers his church, the Spirit does, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And to, to receive his gifts, to be enlightened, sanctified, you know, kept holy as we confess. Mm-hmm. The challenge is, is that when we break loose of actually the only means by which that institution can be preserved, which is Christ's forgiveness, yeah. right? And, and yeah, right. namely loving one another, which means to forgive one another. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> right. not, it's not erotic love, it's actually uh, forgive. And, right. and that's a, a daily exercise, as, as anyone who's married knows. <laughs> it is a discipline. Yeah. Because there are often times when you don't want to do love or forgiveness to anybody except yourself. It's like, you always do that. Are you ever going to stop doing that? Right. And I say, I'm trying. And then I do it again. Right. So what's the only I'm, thing that's going to make that work is don't say anything. Right. Forgive me. <laughs> right. Bite, bite that lip hard and walk away. <laughs> no, I, uh, I was rereading um, uh, William McRaven's book, Make Your Bed This Morning, as I wait for my Stephen Pressfield novels to show up. And that's the thing that impresses me about um, Admiral McRaven's speech that he turned into a book, mm-hmm. is that in a certain sense, the simplest 
part of being a Christian is that you are to simply love as Christ loved you and forgive one another as you've been forgiven. Simple. So simple. In fact, it's actually easy. It's, as you just pointed out, it's we who may try and make it complicated or do make it complicated. No, it's too easy in by, a way, right? By adding qualifications and conditions, right? Butts and breaks, we can sometimes say. Mm -hmm. But McRaven's point with, number one, first thing in the morning, make your bed. It's a discipline. And it's the best way to start your day off. Make your bed. There, you're making order out of your life. And if nothing no, else good that happens that day, that did. Right. Yeah. You can come home at the end of the day and say, I, my bed is made. It started well. <laughs> right. And if you, and his point is, if you can make your bed, you can clean your room. And if you can clean your room, you can clean your house. And if you can clean, if you can clean your house, you can go outside and take care of your yard and so forth. And if you can do that, you can help your neighbor. But if you can't even make your own bed, how do you expect to help anybody else? So that's, I mean, that's a very secular way of talking about love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Right. But it is a discipline. And Paul talks about this in his letters constantly, that it is a discipline to walk in love and forgiveness. That as Christians, he's not saying to the Galatians, for example, or to Timothy, this is what is expected of you. He's saying, no, this is actually a discipline. You need to be disciplined because when you walk, this is how you're going to walk. Yeah. Or in Ephesians, when he talks about the armor of, of faith, however he describes it, whatever analogy he uses, he doesn't say you should do this. He says simply, this is just the way it is. This is how you walk. Yeah, it's unavoidable. And the conflict arises amongst you, whether it's in Corinth or Galatia or wherever, the conflict arises when you break ranks and you're more worried about yourself and what other people say about you than you care about the person to your left and your right. Mm. And I think I've been doing a lot of work on this lately for a project, but it, we fail to, to really fully appreciate the tribalism in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And mm -hmm. you brought it up in, in a roundabout sort of way that the our holy text is written in a tribal society. It's written for, to and, actually create a tribal society. And it's written to create a tribal society. And there is such a thing as toxic tribalism that we're always dealing with socially right now in the year them of Lord. kind of thinking, right? Yeah. yeah. But Stephen Pressfield in a series of videos that are available on YouTube where he talks about tribalism after his book Gates of Fire was published, it's very interesting because he's essentially saying, or no, it was after the Afghan campaign was published right. about, about uh, Alexander's campaign in Afghanistan. And the Afghans killed Cyrus or Darius. Was it Darius? I think they killed Darius, the Persian. They killed him. They defeated Alexander when Alexander was believed to be not only a god, but undefeatable. They beat up the British twice. They beat up the Russians who at that time were considered to be completely, you couldn't beat the Russians. They are the Russians. Go back and watch any war movie from the 80s. The Red Scare is real. Mm, yeah. And then of course, in recent history, we're there. And so Pressfield in the Afghan campaign, not only is he examining Alexander's campaign in Afghanistan, but then showing, hey, every, every force, every military force that goes in Afghanistan does the exact same thing, almost in the exact same way and in the exact same places. And what we don't understand is tribalism yeah. and tribal identity, that these are not soldiers. These are warriors, that tribal culture produces warriors. You don't enlist in an army and in a military force to become a soldier, but from the time you're born, you're, can, you're expected to be a warrior, a fighter. Yeah. That's your primary vocation in a tribal society is be a warrior. Why? Because your, the, your entire society hangs on whether or not you can protect it against that other tribe. Yeah. Even our best military um, units uh, pale in comparison as far as right. their dedication and commitment to one another. Right. right? Well, and this is Pressfield's point too, though, is this is what the American military does is it creates tribes. That's what the base, the purpose of basic training mm -hmm. or BUDS or any kind of, of special operations training. It is to take the individual citizen and the ideology of a citizen as an individual agent, destroy that, and then build this tribe right. out of this group of young men. Because on the battlefield... It's not, you're not going to fight for your country. You're not going to fight for your flag. You're not going to fight for an idea. You're going to fight for the guy on the right and the left of you. Yeah. That's who you're fighting yeah. for. That's who you'll die for. And that's why tribalism, it, tribal societies are able to defeat these much larger enemies. Yeah. And it's really brilliant 
uh, as far as for military operations. The the problem is, is we see with with veterans, right? Uh, right. Come back and into a society that's radically yeah, individual. Now go be a citizen. Yeah, yeah. It's radical individualism. Yeah. Live for oneself. Yeah. Take care of oneself. And there's right. nothing, which is why something, I mean, as simple as giving, you know, a PTSD vet, a, a dog mm-hmm. that they care for, right. um, starts to set, recenter their life, you know? Right. It's, it's, well, and bring it, to bring it back around to the church, they don't have a mission anymore. That's true too. Yeah. They've lost the mission. And I hear this over and over in friends of mine that are combat vets and, and in podcasts I listen to done by combat vets is the struggle and the kind of the sense of lostness, the loss of purpose mm-hmm. and goal yeah. because you don't have a mission anymore. And so you got to find a new mission. And this is, I think, what has affected the church so negatively in the in the past several decades is we're con- you'll notice every four or five years, there's a new mission statement or a new mission theology or some sort of we got to do this now. Right. The church has to do this or that. But we haven't asked why. No, and there's no buy-in because we don't ask right. why. And so yeah. it ends up being some top-down, like, here's what we're going to be. And most mm-hmm. folks sitting in the pew are saying, eh, right. nah, sorry. <laughs> well, and where you and I serve, we, we serve in rural areas predominantly, and rural rural culture is very tribal. Yeah. As much as we are in the 21st century, rural cultures are very tribal. We call it conservative, I think, in a political way. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but but the the tribe is bound up in their identity is bound up in what they do, what they say, how they how they act. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. What will the neighbors think? Here's our traditions. Here's our story. Here's our culture, and these have been established over decades and decades. And it's not negative. I mean, I think that's. The risk is you right. say, well, we've always done it this way as a negative. No, that's not necessarily a negative. Uh, right. It's not very defensible <laughs> to an outsider, right? Yeah, there. that's a good point. Yeah, so if you had to say to someone who, maybe you tried to bring somebody into the tribe through marriage, for example, Yeah. Uh, and you're going to explain yeah. to them you know, why we do what we do, uh, you're, you're not actually equipped to do that because it's you've lost your moorings. Yeah, right. You are doing maybe even what's God pleasing or what what's even good, but you no longer right. understand why um, our, right. your society is built around that. I'm thinking through this, and I'm just thinking out loud, uh, so don't don't flame me in the comments. But this maybe this is the difference between the corporate top down model and the tribal model, mm-hmm. which is the corporate model tries to be tribal hmm. in an artificial way, mm-hmm. but it's not, and that's why our worship we call it corporate worship, but it's actually tribal worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we, every congregation, we call it, you know, every congregation has its own personality, but what we're really saying is each congregation is its own tribe yeah. no, it's and true. it has its own history, its own traditions, its own personality. Yeah. And it will defend that to the death. And I think a good pastor will too, though, because sure. he recognizes, like you said, this isn't entirely a negative. It can go negative if it takes away from Christ and the gifts, but that's really then the pastor's vocation is to stand in the overlap between the first article and the third article, mm-hmm. to stand in that overlap at the cross of Christ. And not call people to go one way or the other, but rather to say, no, you, we've got to hold the line right here. And to keep- This is where that discipline happens at. But to keep running with that, really what's become a pretty large tangent here, <laughs> um, but to keep running with it as a new pastor, um, an outsider brought into the tribe, asked, yeah, to, right. asked to lead the tribe. Yeah. yeah. Be a tribal elder with no leadership currency whatsoever. Right. Not only leadership currency, but <laughs> just no basic knowledge of history. Uh, and and yeah. histories aren't- usually documented or the practices aren't well um, explained or, or understood. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. so, so if, <laughs> if the congregation, I mean, if the, the tribe says, Hey, we want you to take us in a new t- direction. Uh, that's what yeah. they might say, but in actuality and yeah. practice, good luck. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, you're a fresh faced West Point Lieutenant talking to a bunch of uh, second tour military vets well, you, <laughs> about how the way, how we're going to do. And things. some people might come along with you, but that becomes a new tribe. Yeah. There's just no way around yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, like for me, we have a school. I mean, I'm doing things that I won't do on Sunday morning with the kids in school because they'll come right along. But and <laughs> maybe the tribe will change over time then, um, or maybe mm-hmm. maybe they won't keep you know rolling with me. We'll see. Sure, right? we'll see how it plays yeah. out. But regardless of that, I mean, it's uh, it's ooh, there, no wonder there's violence. You know, one hundred percent. You know, pushback if we like. Yeah. 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 I wish, actually, I wish somebody would have taught me this when I was at seminary, because I think this is actually at the root, as you just pointed out, of a lot of pastoral anxiety when you take a new call. Well, I think it was it was said to me, but it wasn't said in a way that I could understand or that was helpful. It was just, oh, teach, Especially teach. at the time. Yeah, yeah teach, right. teach, teach, teach. You're like, okay, yeah. why? 
Yeah. Well, if it's a, I mean, if it's, why, if it's not what? a great practice, why should I bear with that? Right. Uh, well, because it just won't go well for you. All right. Well, that's, I right. believe you on that. Um, you know, that's right. just basic nature, but you still haven't really explained then from yeah. observable wisdom, <laughs> how these things mm-hmm. actually play out, why they play out this way, um, and how we might, you know, do it better if you like. So that's no, it's good. Yeah. 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 Listen to the old guys. They know something. (laughs) Right. Back to the book. Verse 23. He has broken my strength in mid course. Dr. Luther writes, this is the way it goes in Christ's kingdom. According to the outer man, he breaks, punishes and humbles his beloved saints and permits them to be tortured here in time that they may be strong and powerful, not outwardly, but inwardly. Mm. The world, however, which he raises up and strengthens in its way here in time, he will humble in the end. Therefore, the prophet and the spiritual people comfort themselves with the thought that they are oppressed with Christ temporarily here on earth, but not at the last day. Yeah. I like, I like, so there again, change the translation from temporarily to temporarily, but it, it works. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is temporarily. <laughs> I know. It's My just bad. one of those old words. Temporally. 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 I, I think of, uh, uh, what, what do you do when you do that quick fry with Asian food? What is that? Stir fry? No, no, no. <laughs> no, it's, it's it really like bread. Yeah, I know. There's a name. I don't, yeah. <laughs> tempura? Yeah, tempura. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, no, it's true. Speaking and, of and This is the reason why uh, people will mock faithful Christians, right? The, the world yes, mocks right. faithful Christians is because... Uh, from the outside, and actually, you know, to our own flesh, it, it seems as if God is breaking, punishing, ruining us, abandoned us. Yeah, and yeah, he's turned his face away from us, and that he's made us miserable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and as we were talking about with Pharaoh, I mean, is is God entitled to to uh, harden the unbelieving Pharaoh's heart so that he will not repent? Is that something that right. God's permitted to do? <laughs> You know, apparently, because he did it. Well, right. Well, no, we actually try to explain it away and say, "Well, Pharaoh hardened his own heart," and and God just kind of confirms right. that. Mm, right. That's not exactly what it yeah. says. I'll give you an eight point three because you stuck the landing. But. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Pharaoh's condition is one of hardness to God and to His word, clearly, yeah. in right. the way that he reacts right. to Moses uh, and how terrified he is, is of these people living up in the Nile Valley or the Nile uh, Basin, mm-hmm. right? In right the, in the Delta, but. Right. Uh, yeah, God uses him. There's just no way around that, right? right and right. and he does the same with us. Uh, can you imagine? I mean, you see a miserable group of people who yet confess Christ as Lord and who believe and forgive mm-hmm. one another. Yes, right. to the outsider, that looks to be um, shameful, really. Pathetic. Pathetic, yeah. Like, most to be pitied among men, as Paul would say. Right. right. If Christ is not raised. Well, and we were talking about before we started to record... The reality of pastoral vocation is to recognize in that overlap between the first and third articles, mm-hmm. to stand before the cross, so to speak, is to recognize that your people are barely holding on most of the time. Oh, yeah. They're barely they're barely making it. In fact, we're recording this on the day that I just paid my taxes. <laughs> yes, speaking of. And speaking of, I'm, I'm one accident away from being homeless, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, like, I'm barely making it. And it seems that the harder I work, the more barely making it I am actually mm-hmm. in a twist. But the point being then, God will break and punish and humble his beloved saints and he permits them to be tortured here in time so that they may be strong and powerful inwardly, that is in faith. Trusting in him so for it, everything needed for body and life. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, to the outward man, to the outward judge, to the pastor, to the people in, in the pews next to you even, all they see is someone who's barely making it, someone who's barely hanging on. Mm. And yet here you are at the Lord's table every Sunday. Here you are texting or calling me on the phone, talking to me, needing a pastor, <clears throat> bringing your child to the baptismal font, whatever it may be. Yeah. And so do we judge by outward appearances? We're not supposed to. We're supposed to judge by the confession. No, and as we talked about in the last episode, um, you know, folks are so terrified of giving the impression that they that they are just barely holding on. So there's all this uh, pretentious, you know, or, or misguided um, 
What do you want to say? Self-justification. That's not, not even self-justification. Just really hiding um, your vulnerability from others. Sure. And so, you know, God gives you this community. He gives you his people. He gives you spouse, um, you know, to, to be vulnerable, to confess, to say, right. here's what's actually going on. Set you on. free to confess. Yeah, yeah, to pray like this. Of course, we don't pray like this in church. Why? <laughs> uh, it, well, we're afraid to sin boldly. Well, and it does sound like unbelief <laughs> because it is, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And, but it's also or faith. promoting sin. <laughs> right. Uh, and the idea that you can actually say to God, you know, I'm not going to make it. Tomorrow, tomorrow's going to be my last day. Uh, but right. you, oh Lord, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, right. you hold me in your hand. You, know, you guide my right. days. Right. Which is why we pray for strength. Mm-hmm. Because he has broken my strength. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But his strength is made tetelestai in weakness. So rather than like say, oh, I don't know, like the weather, mother nature, right, is a way of abstracting it from saying, no, actually God's the one who caused the rain to fall, the sun to shine, or the clouds, the floods, Mm -hmm. the thunder, you know, Mm -hmm. the the tornado, you know, whatever it is, or or the drought or the blight, you know? Yeah, right. And he does all of those things for your benefit. Right. Go watch... uh... Hostile Planet on Amazon Prime, mm. if you want to see how this plays out. Because one, it's an unflinching look at the brutality of nature. They don't try and pretty it up like so many other, like Planet Earth, for example. Right. But at the same time, the narrator, who is Bear Grylls, I think, is so, the the production is driving, driving so hard toward environmentalism and we're killing the planet. And the reason these things are happening is because of us. Right. And, and so it, it, the subtext, and it's a very clumsy subtext because they're jamming it down your throat as much as they can is that do you like what you see because if you do save the planet yeah yeah versus this is actually the law of nature right here this is natural law at play right in front of us and we can't fix this in fact the more we try and fix it the worse we make it well and like we yeah speaking of hubris the idea that if we somehow resolve our our living you know that we can we can have a more collaborative and cooperative life with nature. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason we built houses, okay? <laughs> right, right, and it's, right. And, and it's so that I don't have to go down to the watering hole and worry about the lion, the hippo, or the crocodile eating me. Right. Wasn't that the, the hunter who was, uh, what was he going after, a rhino or something? And then he got- That poacher? Yeah. And then he got- uh, They got gored by an elephant and eaten by lions in South Africa. Or I thought he was, I thought he was uh, trampled by an elephant, right? Yeah, he was. He was gored by an elephant, trampled. Ah. And then lions, and then the lions ate him. Before we found him. <laughs> right. It's like, it's so perfect. <laughs> right. There's your Disney movie. Kismet right there. Oh. Right. So, he broke, yeah, he, be careful what you pray for. Well, and the, and again, he breaks our strength. The things that we right. put our trust in, he tears down. 100%. A- anything that isn't him. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the book, verse 27, thou art the same. Dr. Luther writes, thou wilt not be a different God or a new God, as the Jews will say when they hear that thou art man and God. They will charge thy people with having a new God, different from the one who founded the earth in the beginning. But while heaven and earth may change, thou remainest the same. And thy years have no end, writes the psalmist. So Dr. Luther then adds to this, this the Jews and heathen have imagined. But thy kingdom remains, and thy people will be with thee in eternity. Hmm. There you go. Yeah. So the world imagines God is dead, and he's left us alone to our own, um, you know. Or as I was talking about with Ben Shapiro, we Christians have created a new God out of the Jewish God. (laughs) One who we can satisfy with our obedience. Right. Hmm. Well, and he had a good point, though, that Christians say, well, you're saved by grace through faith. That's the Protestant, you know, proclamation. But you'll notice, even in the epistles of Paul, for example, he still has things that you have to do. You still have to do works. <laughs> good point. Like, yeah, you do have a good point. He does. The difference being, though, I don't do it because I'm going to earn my way into heaven. Right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, how was it in the epistle on Sunday? You know, let you uh, be of the same mind of, as Christ. Right. Yes. And so then, yes. I mean, I felt obligated to say, "Good luck with that." <laughs> right. Basically. Right. Right. You know, try to conform your will and desires to Christ's will and desires. Right. You know, try try and think like a god, or to follow after his example as another you right. know case. Right. Um, you right. know. Well, yeah. Take up your cross and follow him. 
does he tell you such, does he give you that command? It's really law. Does he give you that command to, uh, because you can obey it? <laughs> right. Or rather that you would trust in his obedience to the Father's will, not yours, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. That's the, that's uh, the offense that, one of the great offenses that Luther causes in his debate with Erasmus is when Luther says, is God, does God command the impossible? And Luther says, well, yeah, actually, that's exactly why he commands the impossible, so that we can't so do every it, mouth would, would be stop. stopped. Yes. Yeah. Whereas Erasmus is saying, no, God commands the possible. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a just God. Hmm. Why would God command something that's impossible for us to do? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Well, he has to expose and the Lu futility of our thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why we still wrestle and argue to this day <laughs> with the commandments. Or things like Pharaoh's hardening of heart. Or, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So back to the book, verse 28, thy children, or the children of thy servants shall dwell secure, their posterity shall be established before thee. Mm. Luther writes, these are the people of Christendom, these are the people of the church, who are baptized and taught by the apostles, for preachers are servants of God. Children are heirs and continue while servants, to whom God gives an earthly reward. Do not continue in the eternal inheritance with the children, as it says in John 8, verse 35. So the children of thy servants, Luther says, these are the people in, in the church who are baptized and taught by the apostles, shall dwell secure. This refers to the children who are heirs mm. and who continue while servants to do what the people in the church who are baptized and the apostles have always done. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is to continue into that eternal inheritance as children of the heavenly father. So then he finishes by saying, in regards to their posterity shall be established before thee, he says, these are the same children, the believers in Christ. They are a spiritual posterity and heirs. Mm -hmm. Yes, joint heirs with their fathers, prepared eternally before God. Although rejected in time before the world, Christ's kingdom has no end. And I know we've talked about this in many episodes, especially, I think, was it in Galatians or whatnot? We were talking about the Christendom model of the church. Mm, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and how, you know, you and I are are somewhat thankful. And and really, <laughs> yeah. not, you know, while we, we benefit from larger church associations, uh, like we were mm -hmm. talking about with institutions before and how, you know, sometimes top down, um, it's not actually faith that's guiding their actions, their deeds, their, their thoughts, you know. No. But rather, it's uh, and it's certainly... The need to justify their existence. Right. Uh, is it a spiritual spiritual posterity? Our beloved, uh, how do we say it? Well, our beloved synod, right? Is sure. is that our inheritance? Or is our inheritance Christ, his, his, his right. kingdom? Well, I've got a whole bookshelf of hymnals that were published by synods that don't exist anymore. Mm. I mean, we could be thankful for those as gifts now, right? 100%. In the way that they benefit us and in, in the work of the church abroad and you know, with missionary Correct. service or training teachers and pastors. Right. Wonderful. You know, great. Or even better citizens, right? Through through right. Um, the sciences and, and the humanities. We, we right. can be thankful for that. We should be thankful for that. And we can even right. support that. But recognize our, our posterity, our inheritance um, is our is the faith. Correct. Right. Which may be taught in those right. in those institutions, uh, but they aren't the institutions themselves. The institutions come and right. go. Churches come and go, actually. Yeah. 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 But Christ's kingdom has no end. Even when it looks as if it's completely fallen apart and there's nothing Even left. when, how does that hymn go? Church bells Even and when steeples are falling. Church bells are, yeah, and steeples are falling. Exactly. Yeah. Grootvig. You, you, like, you yeah. like your Scandinavians. Look at that. I do, right? So... That brings us to the end of the psalm and the end of Dr. Luther's comments and essentially the end of the penitential psalms. We've got one that we didn't cover. We might still have to do it just for the sake of completing the, the set. It'll be the missing episode. Why didn't they ever right? do that there one? There we go. Maybe we'll do a special, a special, a secret penitential podcast. <laughs> yeah, because we, I think we're a little fatigued. We'd like to get into some uh, Eastery stuff next week. Are we? No, actually, you know, I, I think could, we've enjoyed I could, this. I could live in these psalms. <laughs> yeah, no, this is my wheelhouse. Yeah, I'm a Good Friday kind of guy. I I do not like Easter. Well, it's not it's not masochistic, right? I mean, it's actually um, it's comforting in its own kind of backhanded kind of way. <laughs> well, Good Friday is my why. Why uh -huh. are we here? Uh -huh. Why am I a Christian? It's Good Friday. Yeah, 
and yeah, I need the resurrection, obviously. I'm not talking about the resurrection in an actual historical context. I'm talking about Easter Sunday and all the tribal <laughs> traditions that come with Easter well, Sunday. Well, and an empty tomb doesn't prove anything, but but a risen Jesus showing his the wounds in his hands and his exactly. side. Exactly. Yeah, and his feet. Exactly, yeah. That actually proves so, something. <laughs> right, 100%, which is why you need the sacrament on Resurrection Sunday morning. Given and shed for you. That's right. Given and shed for you. As Dr. Luther himself says then, Jesus is more present for you, his kingdom is more present for you at the Lord's table than he was even for his own disciples. Mm. Beautiful. Because he's always there for you. Yeah, from the right hand of the Father. Exactly. Mm. So that wraps this up. I got nothing else. You got anything else? No. Good. <laughs> I hate technology. Had, Can I say you, that? By the time you by the time you hear this, the producer will have cleaned this this uh, podcast up and erased all of the technical glitches that one one half of this duo suffered today. Actually, yours. We, yeah, no, we had to spend some time fixing your side. Too. It, I was going to say I had to unplug my computer and ground find the ground. So yeah, there were there were a few uh, clicks and buzzes that had to be resolved. Uh, during the recording of this podcast. So I want to thank and appreciate us for getting to the end of this podcast today and all the support that we give ourselves. <laughs> but as always, we thank you for all your support and everything that we do at Higher Things. Uh, and a blessed Easter tide to all of you. And uh, we'll catch, catch you next week for a brand new episode. Peace. Peace.